The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. John, one of our community members, has volunteered to help organize those receptions. So if you'd like to, if you've been around for a while and would like to make sure that we have these Sunday morning receptions, you can just let me or the office know and we'll connect you with John and uh, support you in sort of making those Sunday morning receptions happen at 11.45. It's surprisingly important, you know, because culturally, mostly what gets reinforced, what gets supported in our culture, probably not just American culture, just generally now in the world, is distractedness. And we sort of pay people who are really good at letting their minds get swept away you know, as long as they can make it into a video game or a novel or a movie or a TV program, you know, that sort of getting lost in thought can be lucrative. But it's a lot of suffering when that's just the habit the mind has is to be swept away. And then it gets, our mind gets dependent on like not being here because ordinary reality like sitting or breathing or hanging out with your partner or your cat or whatever, it's like, well, it's not like Game of Thrones, or you know, it's not. There aren't dragons, there aren't sort of illicit sex or danger or great wealth or you know, and even I don't know about you, but my news consumption habits tend to be about drama, and it's like not about trying to be informed to, in order to be a better citizen, but it's like it's not that different than when I'm surfing the internet looking for something interesting to absorb into. Same thing with the news. I just like, I want something provocative. I want something out of the box. I want something to stimulate some strong emotion so I feel alive. So uh, it's nice that we have this place, we have this community, we have these teachings to kind of reflect back to ourselves our addiction. Because this is really... The addiction the Buddha pointed to 2,500 years ago, it's, you know, the media has changed, a lot of things have changed, but the mind's tendency to get addicted to self-dramas, to just dramas that involve us in one way or another, a sense of me one way or another, that hasn't changed so much. And the first thing that we notice is that those dramas getting caught, our mind identified our mind, our heart pushed around by the ups and downs of life, by the pleasures and pains of life, the joys and sorrows. That's suffering, the getting pushed around, not the joys and suffering themselves, surprisingly. That's not the problem. It isn't the problem that some moments are really beautiful and some moments are really painful. The problem actually is a mind, this mind, the conditioned habits of this mind feeding dependent on the dramas, taking the, you know, the, the fact that my heart gets pushed around by the news or other dramas, other you know, self-dramas, the getting pushed around my mind is dependent on. Feeling alive, we end up like not feeling alive unless there is emotional turmoil. Well, I might win the lottery or I this person might fall in love with me or I might get this promotion or I might finally get my body into shape or I might, 
you know, fix the problems of the world. And but it's the uh, addictive identification with what's going on around us. It's not that the world itself is bad. It's the mind's deep tendency to personalize what's moving around us, the world's ups and downs, locally, around us, globally. We personalize it, and we want to feed off the drama. And that really takes us to this question that we're going to look at for this week in a couple of weeks. And uh, we're starting a new book for anybody who wants to read along. Um, I'll be drawing on Ajahn Sushito's book, Mindfulness, A Way of Awakening. Ajahn Sushito, maybe some of you know, he's one of the more senior Western Buddhist monks. He's English, um, originally ordained in Thailand, I think, but spent most of his time with Ajahn Sumedho in England, another Western monk, a really wise person. He teaches more and more now that he's no longer abbot of one of the monasteries in England, so he travels around a lot, including in the States, Several people in our community has, have studied with him besides myself. And uh, he's got lots of great books. And the nice thing about monastics is they don't sell their teachings. So these books are all downloadable. And you can even ask Abayagiri if they have hard copies. They're happy to mail them to you. And Mary and Scott cut up some little slips of paper on the table in the lobby. So it's the web page where you can either get a PDF version of this or a copy for your e-reader. Some of you use e-readers now. Or how to order a hard copy if you want. Don't feel like you have to have the book, but you might find it a very useful resource. Um, And there's, of course, a lot of other great books at that website. So you can scroll around and take a look at some of the other books from the nuns and monks that are available there. But anyway, this book, you know, as any book on meditation... Any good book on meditation begins with the question, like, why meditate? So why are we meditating? And uh, it really goes to this point I was making right at the start. So it, it really has to do with where we think happiness and suffering arises from. Mostly, you know, the way we're conditioned, this is the way of distraction. This is why, this is really what our economy is based on, is that We think happiness and unhappiness arises according to what we have, like the people who love us, the friends that we have, the possessions that we have, the security, the kind of ordinary security of a big house or money in the bank or living with people we sort of feel comfortable with as opposed to people we don't feel comfortable with. I mean, all these sort of things we generally assume or the causes for happiness. And so then, when we're feeling stressed, when we're suffering, we look there to resolve our experience of suffering. Well, what can I eat? What can I do in the world? What can I fix? What can I make happen in the world in order to feel better, to address the suffering that I feel? So we end up becoming enslaved by the marketers because the basic presumption that whatever medicine I need, it's out there in terms of an experience that I can have, something I can get, something I can possess, or something I can get rid of. And so then we're really vulnerable to the external. And most spiritual traditions would say, actually, the happiness, that the causes for happiness and suffering 
even though it might appear that it has to do with what's out there in the world, actually has a lot more to do with what's going on in the heart and mind, how the mind is relating, how the mind is seeing or organizing itself in the world, what the mind is taking this experience to be. So when we ask the question like where is real, whatever you see as your ultimate refuge like peace or understanding or unconditional love, where do you think you're going to find that? Out in the world of experience? Like if me and my honey go to this tropical beach and we take a five-year sabbatical, first win the lottery, then take a five-year sabbatical, you know, and just hang out in this unspoiled tropical place where nobody's getting exploited, you know, like as if that exists somewhere, (laughs) and uh, hang out with, uh, there are no, you know, tarantulas or scorpions, no, just really fluffy uh, other creatures that look like, you know, baby eyes and (laughs) like friendly chipmunks and... You know, just kind of commune in that beautiful tropical breezes, sunsets that last a long time, and, you know, lots of good fruit smoothies with protein powder and really toned and tanned bodies and things like that. <laughs> yeah, it does sound good. I mean, that it's nice actually to describe these utopias to ourselves because it does two things. It, it reveals how strongly the belief is that there is some worldly experience that's going to satisfy us. And then the other thing it it demonstrates is that what we imagine is going to satisfy us is just not going to happen. You know, whatever, like if we get more and more specific about the vision, the more we realize that's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Unless our vision ends up being able to include the life we already have. right? Because then it's not about the outer circumstances, it's about the mind that relates to it, or how the mind relates to to it, how the mind organizes itself, understands itself. That's where freedom is. So that, of course, Buddhism, the teachings of the Buddha is very much like, this is where we find peace, not by organizing the world in the perfect way, because that's what causes war, that's what causes exploitation. It's like, uh, you know, well, no, I can't live in that neighborhood because I don't feel safe there. You know, I can't have these people around me. We can't have immigrants coming in because, you know, it will, that's not my vision of safety. My vision of safety is, you know, being with people that I like, people I trust, people that look like me or act like me. And we really end up imprisoning ourselves and justifying all kinds of oppressive systems because we think that happiness, real peace, real freedom arises by organizing the world in a particular way. And basically, we're going to organize the world according to our cultural conditioning. And if you've ever taken a close look at cultural conditioning, you see how imperfect perfect it is. It's really based on sort of these, you know, clan mentalities and, you know, basically me versus you, it's just a question of who me is. You know, my immediate family or some, you know, set of people that we associate with. And everybody else is some kind of danger to that. 
So this is the this is really the the basic answer to the question why meditate is we have some confidence it may be feeble, but we have some confidence that real peace, real freedom from suffering, what the heart truly seeks is here in the heart, in the mind, not in the world. And this is not a small thing. It's a it's a powerful transformation because the biggest problem we have is our addiction to the things of the world. And it doesn't matter if you're sort of progressive and your things of the world is to have a, you know, a fuel efficient car and solar panels and, you know, vegetables that were grown within 200 meters of your house and (laughs) by barefoot farmers and, (laughs) you know, whatever, whatever it might be. Versus, you know, buying from only corporations that exploit other people and whatever the bad thing is. It's not so much, and I'm not saying that it doesn't make a difference, but it's not really going to lead to happiness. You could get really good at being green, really good at understanding the systemic biases in your own heart and really doing a good job at uprooting them or at least keeping them in view so that you don't act on you know, all the unwholesome ways our mind has been conditioned by culture. But still, that doesn't mean you won't suffer. You're, you'll enjoy the bliss, the Buddha would say, you'll, you'll enjoy the bliss of blamelessness if you get really good at paying attention to how you operate in the world. It's not nothing. It's, it's a big deal, actually, to get good at that. But you could still be internally neurotic and always feel you're not good enough. And you could still have a really hard time getting along with your lover, your partner, your, your spouse, or whatever, your friend, your cat. So even though we might like it really attuned to how to live in a generous way, how to not exploit each other, we still have these patterns that are acting. We're just refraining. We still have anger and greed and delusion. We're just refraining from acting it out in the world. We're learning how not to act it out in the world. But we still have to address the root of it here in the mind, in the heart, the root of ignorance. The Buddha talks about this in terms of the four vipalasas, you know, distortions of view, distortions of perception where we take what's actually impermanent and we imagine it to be permanent. We take what's actually not satisfying and imagine that it's satisfying. We take what is actually not beautiful and we imagine it's beautiful. I mean, a lot of things that we take to be beautiful are just beautiful because we've been culturally conditioned to see it as beautiful. If you were culturally conditioned another way, you wouldn't think it's beautiful. So there are, there are these just distortions that we have to retrain the mind. And how do we retrain the mind? We cultivate you know, what's called in the tradition sampajana, sati sampajana, which usually gets translated. Sati just means mindfulness. Sampajana means something like clear comprehension or wise attention, something like that. So it's not just about being present although that's a big part of it, 
but we're present, we, we are, we're cultivating this continuous present moment awareness, mindfulness, tracking the present moment, not forgetting that this is happening, that this is being known. We're cultivating that continuity of awareness in order to comprehend. And what do we want to comprehend? The causes of stress and the causes for release. So if there's anything that's relevant for us to be comprehending as we're living our life and doing our formal meditation practice, it would be comprehending the causes for stress and the causes for release. I was just noticing Sherry sitting over there. She's one of our teachers for all the couples retreats and couple workshops that are offered at the center. And it's the same thing in our intimate relationships or relationships with dear friends. Right? It's instead of being in that relation on automatic pilot, what we should do is we should be cultivating this tranquility and this alertness so we can comprehend better the causes for stress and the causes for release. Now can you imagine if in all of our relationships, not just the person we're like in a partnership with, all of our relationships, including our pets, including the people at work, people at the stores, in our neighborhoods or wider communities, if we would be actually interested in the most subtle ways to comprehend the causes for tension, causes for stress, the causes for throwing people out of our heart, and the causes for release of all of that, for authentic moments of feeling like we belong together, that we can share this space together, that we can see the humanity in each other, understand, oh, In the same way that it's not easy for me being a human being, it's not easy for you being a human. I mean, look around the room. Do you think there's anybody in this room that has an easy time being a human being, having a sensitive heart, a heart that's sensitive to everything that comes and goes, a heart that's sensitive to all the ignorance inside and outside, right, in our own mind and heart, conditioned into our own personality, conditioned into everybody else's personality, it's not easy for anyone. Maybe there are people in the room that it's more challenging. Being a human being is more challenging than other people. But we all get thrown around by what in Buddhism we call the eight worldly winds. Pain and pleasure, gain and loss, you know, success and failure, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. We all get pushed around or we all end up bumping into these different experiences in life. So the question is, are we going to get interested in what is the mind doing? Like, um, what, how is the mind, how is this mind, the conditioned patterns of this mind, how does it support experiences of stress for myself and others? How did the way this mind relates, this mind understands, support the experience of release, love and happiness for myself and others? Because one of the first insights, the more you pay attention, doesn't mean you're a Buddhist, because anybody, you know, Buddhism is basically human common sense, right? Anybody, I mean, basically the Buddhist teaching, the cause for suffering is not paying attention That makes sense. It's dangerous. There is nothing more dangerous than not being awake. I mean, it's kind of commonsensical to say that, to know that. And the greatest refuge, your best friend, is 
to train your heart, your mind to pay attention in an ongoing way with a lot of tranquility, a lot of ease, and a lot of alertness. Because no matter how messed up your situation is or how privileged your situation is, it will help to relate to it with a lot of relaxation and a lot of clarity. You'll just negotiate the twists and turns of your life better. It's human common sense. And so with that stable, clear, relaxed presence, we get interested in like how, how can I remove the causes for stress for myself and others? How can I uh, support the causes for happiness, for ease in myself and others? Right? Wouldn't you be interested in doing that? I'm definitely interested in that. It's like, and so when we find ourselves contributing to stress, we take that as a teacher. Oh, yeah? Okay, honey, don't do that again. Because you see what just happened there? You were relating in this way. You were reacting in this way. You were constructing reality in this way. And look what, what happened. Things got really tight. I started to suffer, and those people around me started to suffer. So don't do that again. Or, oh, do you see what just happened? You know, I was relating in this way with a lot of compassion, with a lot of empathy. And you see how things started to work better. Less tension, less suffering for myself and others. Oh, maybe this is the way. Let me read what Ajahn Sushito says right near the beginning of his book. He's talking about this. He says, mindfulness is a steady attention to particular experience, while clear comprehension is the comprehension that can occur when this attention is steady. Right? So that's the whole key. There's no comprehension, right? because I can be aware, mindfully aware in a moment, but it's only when that awareness gets steady and continuous that insight begins to rise. Because because it's a conditional, like whatever is happening is conditional, it's unfolding lawfully to due to the internal and external causes and conditions. And in order to read that, in order to comprehend how this moment is unfolding, we need a steadiness of awareness, a continuity of awareness. That's what allows for that clear comprehension. He says, clear comprehension fully attunes to the specific but changing character of a sensation, feeling, mood, or thought. Taken together, then, mindfulness and clear comprehension offer a way of maintaining a direct view of one's inner life a moment at a time. This is, the Buddhist, this is Buddhist meditation. It offers us a way to get to know ourselves directly and in depth. And the Buddha, you know, he really has these pithy phrases. He, he says something like, there is no enemy more dangerous than your own untrained mind, right? A mind that's not mindful, not clearly comprehending what's going on. And there's no friend, not even like a great parent or great grandparent. There's no other being, no other friend that's going to take care of you more than a well-trained mind, a mind that's in the habit of being present in this relaxed and clear way, clearly comprehending the way it is. And so just to break that down, and then I'll open it up for people's comments, questions. But so when we're contemplating, clearly uh, comprehending the way it is, 
then what are we comprehending? Well, first and foremost, we'll feel the body. And the body is like a gateway to mindfulness because it's, for most of us, most of the time, the most concrete experience unfolding in the present moment. It's like pretty easy to wake up to the body. Not our idea of the body or our mental image of the body, but sensation as sensation. Like right now, just check it out. Knowing sensation as sensation. And it's really interesting because I might like feel the pelvis and knees making contact, but it's very easy for my mind to slip into either a mental image or to the thought, oh yeah, that's, those are my knees or that's my sits bones on the cushion. But that's not the direct and immediate experience of sensation, which would be more like hardness or pressure or warmth. So just grounding into the reality of sensation is a, a really great training place for this mindfulness and clear comprehension. Being intimate and sustaining that present moment awareness. Right? And you'll know you're doing that when the mind experiences some freedom from its thoughts about things. There still may be thoughts, but they'll go to the periphery. They won't be dominating and in a sense manipulating or, or directing your experience as a human being. So part of just having some moments of mindfulness of the body is you'll experience freedom from your conceptual reality, the stories you're telling yourself. Because they just have to recede, because the mind can't do both things at once. It can't be attending to the stories we have about what's happening and be radically intimate with sensation. That alone is a huge step along the path. When you get relatively good at that, I mean, it's not entirely sequential like I'm describing it, but just generally I'm going from what's relatively easy to what's relatively challenging. So what's relatively easy, as hard as it is, is to be aware of the body in and of itself, not in terms of your thoughts or ideas of the body. And then if you can sustain that, it's already... There's already a lot of freedom in moments of just being present with the experience of embodiment. And then this is our basic training ground as we move through the day is to stay awake to the body because it really sets up the next training, which is much more subtle and harder, which is now we're going to be mindfully aware, clearly comprehending the activities of the mind. But to be aware of like, my irritation in my mind means I can't be irritated and be aware that there's irritation and it's like this, right? So when I say be aware, clearly comprehending the emotional activities or any of the activities of the mind, it means that there's the space of equanimity. I'm not identified with the emotions. I'm not identified with the mental qualities that are present because the awareness mindfulness and clear comprehension is comprehending, oh, judging is like this. Oh, worrying is like this. Joy is like this. Gratitude is like this. Hatred is like this. Closing down is like this. So the balance and the strength of the practice we develop with the body then allows the mind, wisdom really, to be clearly comprehending the activities of the mind. 
all of our programming. This is that cultural programming, genetic programming too, that I mentioned earlier. Hating it doesn't help. Wishing that our mind wasn't programmed, wishing we didn't have the personality we have doesn't help. What helps is to see that it's like this. What helps is to clearly comprehend it in as many moments during the day as we can. And then when we get really good at that, which is really not, that's, that's a real challenge. It takes, for most people, decades of practice to even do that on a regular way, to be able to step outside. I mean, we are, we're already doing it to some degree, but to do it systematically so that whenever there's a strong emotion, there's the wisdom clearly comprehending, oh yeah, it's like this now. Right? So you're, always, you're never completely lost in emotions. There's always some wisdom clearly comprehending. Oh yeah, it's just you know, that neediness operating and it looks and feels like this and this is how it colors reality and therefore I don't have to get lost in it. I don't have to act it out because I'm aware of it. I can be irritated but not act it out with my spouse. Right? I can be proud but not believe it's actually me. It's just that feeling being known. It really saves us from a lot of suffering, this awareness of the activity of the mind. And it sets up an even more profound object of awareness, you could say. So we can also clearly comprehend what the mind is, not the activity of the mind, but that activity, where is that activity happening? Well, we say it's happening to me. But in Buddhist terms, we say what's happening in the mind or it's happening in the heart. Well, what is the heart? Not the activity of the heart, the emotional activity, the cultural, culturally conditioned activity of our personality. What's the heart, the space of the heart, let's say, or the space of the mind itself? Well, you know, in Buddhist terms, we say it's empty, empty of self. There's no core, no permanent self there. It's nature, not self. It's empty nature. So being mindfully aware, clearly comprehending the nature of the mind, the nature of the heart, is profoundly revolutionary in terms of the habit of organizing our experience around a perceived sense of me, mine, I, that self, that permanent self. That gets uprooted when we can be mindful and clearly comprehending the nature of the mind itself. Not the activity, but the activity is happening here in the mind, right? Isn't that, the, isn't that where your activity of the mind happens? Well, what is that space of the mind? I mean, that's just the word, but what subjectively can we study the space of the heart, the space of the mind, to realize what it actually is? When you do that, According to the Buddha and our teachers and our own experience, a revolutionary thing happens. And then when those insights, those revolutionary insights happen, then the habit of taking things personally starts to erode. So the difference between someone who's taking everything very personally and a person who has a lot more space of equanimity and generally doesn't take things very personally unless it's like that perfect wave and maybe then you could still trigger that personal reactivity in that person. It's because they've had this insight over and over again. They've had the insight, bodily sensations are just that, mental activity is just that, 
And the space of the mind, the space of the heart, is just that. It's nature. It's not self. There's no core me there. It's just an open space. And you could call that open space love. I'm really okay with people calling it the divine or God because those are just words. The important thing is to wake up and clearly comprehend what that open space, heart, mind is. Because when the mind comprehends it, has insight, wakes up to it, there's more freedom. Less likely for us to act out our ignorance, our greed, and our aversion in the world. And the world slowly becomes a better place the more people do that kind of work. So we have about 10 minutes. It would be nice to hear from some of you your own experience or your own way of understanding why meditate. And remember, you've got to point the mic right at your mouth, not up and down like this. It's a directional mic, and that way we don't get much feedback. So who'd like to start? It's always nice for folks to say their name as well. Anybody have any questions or comments from your practice you'd like to share with the group? Uh, yeah, it's John. Um, so I guess I'd like your comment on this. Um, when I'm riding my bike, and especially yesterday, you know, it was a beautiful day, but I found myself, of course, involved in all these dramas. So I'm kind of just like making sure I don't run into anything, but all these things are going on. And then um, what brings me out of it isn't exactly what you were saying, I don't think. Uh, like I wasn't thinking about a mental st- – I wasn't thinking of the stories, oh, this is what this story is now. I was just noticing the colors around me and not so much, say, the green of the grass or the sign, but just green or greenness and green and blue and white, you know, clouds and sky. And, and when I was doing that, that really seemed to – I mean, I started to kind of smile and all these stories went away, obviously. Um, and also my – I also began to hear things I wasn't hearing before, like the sound world opened up in some way. But it seemed, at least what it seemed to, was more external, like I was noticing things in the external world, not something in the internal world. But you were noticing them in and of themselves. And so what you described is a really good example of that first and most predominant training ground for our, for our practice, which is sensations in and of themselves. But... I didn't say this, but I could have, I should have really, is it's not just sensations, it's also seeing and hearing. So basically the five physical senses, if we train to be intimate with any of the five or a combination of the five, not the mental interpretation of what we're touching, what we're hearing, what we're seeing, what we're smelling and tasting, but the smelling, tasting, hearing, seeing, touching in and of themselves, then immediately we're free from the mental proliferation, right? To the degree I'm really in the experience of seeing the greenness or hearing the sounds as sounds, not my mental interpretation. Then I'm liberated temporarily from the imprisonment of my concepts and the dramas and the stories, ongoing stories, the endless narration, internal dialogue. So it's not really about internal, external, as it turns out, right? Because Your seeing is happening here and now. Hearing is happening here and now. Touching is happening. It's all like later in centuries after the time of the Buddha, there was, you know, because philosophically Buddhism just kept expanding and um, as people continued to sort of do riffs on the Buddhist teachings. And later, centuries later, they had this mind-only school of Buddhism 
which is a point the Buddha might have made in his own way, but it's always, now whether there's an external reality or not, the Buddha didn't really want to have to address that. But the point is, you and me, our experience, where we're suffering and we're experiencing some freedom, this is all happening in our heart and mind. Whether or not there's an external reality, the subjective reality is what a spiritual seeker is dealing with. Right? Now, it just turns out that when we do this mind work, we end up transforming the world into a better place. This is actually how we address the systemic problems and injustices in the world. doesn't mean we don't also do things in the world, but in our doing things in the world, we're really uh, pointing the finger at the real cause is transforming the mind itself, the heart itself. Because that's where those... That's where all the biases and injustices, the roots of all the injustice, it's all in our mind. You know, the fear and the greed and the ignorance in our mind. Thanks for that good example, John. And then I think someone had, was it? Ingrid. Real close, Ingrid. I was driving down uh, 31st Street, uh, yesterday, looking and see, seeing a beautiful church that someone had told me about, and all of a sudden, <clears throat> from an alley, someone in a huge red SUV came tearing out and almost hit me. But he just stopped within a millimeter, and I, I screamed and swore, and I had a rage reaction, which still troubles me. And um, I'm just wondering how a more enlightened person. <laughs> <laughs> would handle this. I mean, I could look back on it and think, "Oh, well, there's a lot of rage in me," but I don't. I don't know. I don't exactly know what my question is. Is I am curious though how a peaceful monk would have yeah. reacted. Well, it's just a question of when wisdom kicks in, and it's just going to. The arising of wisdom is also a lawful, conditional thing. Ingrid's not in charge of when wisdom arises. It, wisdom has as much momentum as it has at any moment of our life. I picked up my cat the other day, and it's, it's, we just adopted it from the, being wild out in the country. Uh, we were starving. And it has lots of wounds. And I picked it up, and it's generally very friendly, but I must have pressed against one of its sores. And so, you know, it snaps at you, right? That's what we do when we're surprised and frightened. We snap. Uh, right? That's, it's like a per- protective mechanism. So that was Ingrid's version of you know, snapping, uh, lashing back. But now, even two days later or whatever it is, even now, even if you've missed it for those 48 hours, now when the memory arises, wisdom has an opportunity to go, oh, honey, of course. Of course it's like that sometimes. Right? Of course that fierce beast expresses itself. You know, you do that again. <laughs> or whatever you said, or whatever you felt. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we'd really like to know. <laughs> and, and you'd make us feel a lot better because you would not normalize the experience of rage, right? Because that's what happens. Is it personal when we lose it? I'm not saying it's skillful when we lose it, but is it actually personal? No. Like, it, now, in hindsight, you can break it down. This is, a, this is where we should use imagination and memory. It's like to really, 
when this revisits, shows up in your mind again, Ingrid, really see how it couldn't have been other than what it was for you in that moment, right? And that now is the time to let wisdom express itself. It's too late for wisdom to express itself then. If you want it to arise sooner next time, then practice it right now by forgiving yourself, by clearly comprehending how it couldn't have been other, given that you were not, uh, you know, whatever your mind was doing, whatever state the mind was in, you know, just the fact of being surprised. And I'll just end with this point. One of the real fruits of cultivating the continuity of mindful awareness is we're less surprised. Because you know what causes surprise? It isn't this SUV barreling down the alley and showing up in the street and braking and stopping a millimeter from your car. The cause for surprise is your mind didn't think that was supposed to happen. Now, we can drive down the street without any expectation of what should or shouldn't happen. It's called not being lost in thought. We don't even realize the thoughts we're lost in, right? Because like when we're just sort of noticing the green, you're driving and it's you know, safe, not much is happening. We're just appreciating or listening to Garrison Keillor or you know, whatever you might be doing, driving your car. Part of what's going on in the mind is a thought that we don't notice, nothing's going to happen. But see, that thought isn't true. Anything could happen. We never know when something's going to happen. An asteroid could fall. We don't know. So we can be driving along knowing that we don't know. That's called a mindfulness of humility, like knowing that we don't know, because that's actually always the case. We don't know. Somebody, you know, recently uh, one of the National Public Radio uh, reporters just had an aneurysm. He was younger than me and died. I forget his name now, but well-known journalist. Just died. Boom. You know, you don't know you have an aneurysm until it, Earth, you know, for most people at least, and then you're dead very soon. And so we don't know these things. Can we live that way, you know, knowing that we don't know? And we think, well, boy, it's going to all be really tight. But that doesn't help, actually. It doesn't make us more skillful living in a world where we don't know who's barreling down the alley. Being afraid of somebody doing something stupid doesn't increase our skill at dealing with it. What increases our skill is to be relaxed and alert, clearly comprehending that anything can happen anytime, clearly comprehending that this is a very alive, dynamic unfolding, this life of mine. Honey, don't go back to sleep. Right? That's what the practice gives us. So that's what you can cultivate now. It's not like demanding that you're generous when somebody makes a stupid mistake. But like not being surprised when stupidity happens. And then the next time you're the stupid person doing something you know, risky, you won't, you won't hate yourself. You understand, yeah, this was not good, but I totally get that it happens sometimes. So what were the causes for making this mistake? Maybe I can tease out with awareness some of those causes so it's less likely to happen in the future. Hopefully that happened with that person. Well, we have to leave it here. It's 11.45. Let's just take a few seconds to let go of the words. Appreciating a few moments of silence. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. 
To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.